Uh, last uh, summer, Julie and I decided to spend the first night of our vacation going to a movie. We don't go to movies much, uh, but we decided that we would kick off our vacation by going to a movie, and that movie was yesterday. Anybody here see the movie or ever heard of the movie yesterday? It came out last summer. Well, if you're unfamiliar with the story, it's about a struggling musician, and he is on a bike ride during a worldwide 12-second blackout. And he's hit by a bus. Uh, trust me, the movie gets better. But, uh, but he's hit by a bus, and he's knocked unconscious. And when he wakes up in the hospital, he wakes up to a world that has never heard of the Beatles and knows none of their music. And he sees this as an opportunity. He will introduce the Beatles' songs to the world as his own, and he will reap all of the fame and all of the fortune of the Beatles for himself personally. And he really enjoys it early on. It is a, it's a fun thing for him to experience. But pretty soon he begins to be burdened, and in fact the burden begins to become crushing. And he realizes, you know, I can sing the songs, I can know the words, I can play the tune... But I know, even if no one else does, that they're not really mine. Um, I'm just pretending. And that pretending began to, to crush him. Every, every word that I'm about to tell you is true. The largest funeral that I have ever conducted was conducted for a man who was caught in a compromising situation with another man's recently ex-wife. When the recently ex-husband heard about it, he came and found where they were, kicked in the door, and he ran this man out into the woods. This man was uh, barely clothed, and there in the woods, he shot that man dead. And I had to meet with a family to do the funeral, and the family, when I met with them, told me two things. They said, uh, this one who had been killed by the ex-husband uh, loved everyone and everyone loved him and I thought to myself that might have been part of the problem um, but then they said this uh, they said uh, he gave his life to Jesus when he was a little boy and you have to be delicate with families in that situation they're grieving and you want to help them and you want to shepherd them through it but you need to know that this man died as he had lived his entire life his entire life was characterized by broken relationships. His entire life was characterized by sexual promiscuity. His entire life characterized by drunkenness. His life bore that witness. It did not at all bear the witness of Christ. And even though he knew all the words to amazing grace and could cry appropriately in the right kind of church service, he wasn't a, he wasn't a follower of Jesus. There was nothing about his life that would lead you to believe that this man was a father, follower of Jesus. And, and that may sound harsh and judgmental to some of you. But there is a difference between pretending to be a Jesus follower because you know the rituals and the tunes and the rhythms and actually being a Jesus follower. And it shows up primarily in the testimony of life that we give to the world. And that is not a preacher's opinion. That is the very clear testimony of the Word of God, the passage of Scripture that we will actually spend time in today. Why don't you find 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 in your copy of God's Word. We're going to look at several verses today, but 
the, the bulk of the verses that we will read are actually the application of a truth that John shares in verse 4. So we're going to look at verse 4 in some depth this morning, and then we will get to two broad application points that John makes in light of that truth. Verse 4 is as close to a definition of sin that you get in Scripture. Here's what it says. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, if you're if tracking along with how things are going in, in 1 John, this is an extraordinarily abrupt change. Because in the verses that, that open up chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, John has, has shared with the people, don't lose hope in your struggle with sin. Don't lose hope in the fact that you are not yet what you will one day be when Christ returns. Hang in there. Keep persevering. Purify yourself in the hope that, that while I fall short so many times as a follower of Jesus right now, when Jesus returns, I'll see him as he is. And as a result of that personal encounter with Christ, I will be made perfect. I will be like him. It's hopeful. It's encouraging. And you go, yay, God. And then, bam, he says... Everyone who practices sin is lawless because sin is lawlessness. Why? Why is he suddenly just taking a hard right turn here after being so hopeful? Why is he being so harsh? Well, the reason he is, he is being so seemingly harsh and abrupt is because of a tendency that has existed since Christianity began for people to hear a message of grace... And then conclude that sin, not that big a deal. In fact, Paul addressed it in the passage of Scripture that Jeremy led us in reading earlier in the worship service. There was this tendency among the church and among the people to whom John was writing for them to conclude, Hey, you know how I can make a bigger deal of, of, of grace? I can sin more. So you sin. And you receive God's grace, and then you essentially pull a, a moral, hey, y'all, watch this. And, and then you say, well, that just shows, that shows grace even more. And Paul says, if that's what you're thinking, you are completely wrong. Grace does not make sin less of a big deal. It is an extraordinarily big deal. It is a bigger deal than most of us even take time to think about. And so having just said that God in his grace is going to bring you to a point in your life where you will be like Jesus, where he will complete the process, you need to understand how big that journey is. You need to understand what a big deal sin is. And you need to understand that anyone who practices sin is lawless because sin is Lawlessness. Now that word lawless was, was triggered in John's mind in all likelihood with all of the discussion in the first three verses that he has um, been spending time with related to the second coming. That whole idea that when Christ returns we will be made perfect spurred his mind to think about lawlessness. Why is that? Because if you trace the usage of that word in the New Testament, you'll understand that Jesus said, Matthew 24, when speaking to his disciples about how uh, the, the end of time would take place, that that, 
that season of world history would be characterized by, here's the word, lawlessness. And then Paul, when he's trying to encourage the, second, uh, the, the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 to keep living their lives, to not let up in living their lives and saying, here's how you'll know when the end of time is coming, points to, tells them to be looking for the man of, and there's the word again, lawlessness. And so that word lawlessness, if you pay attention to how it's used in the New Testament, frequently is used to characterize the end of the world, and in particular, it is used to characterize the nature of the world. And the nature of the world, the nature of this one who will personify what is going on in the world, is that of lawlessness, completely, fully, totally rebelling against the authority of God in their lives, casting off all restraint, choosing to be God's in their own eyes. And so what John is saying here is that when you sin, it's not a, a moral stub of the toe. It is not a, oh, shucks, God, I'll try harder next time. When you sin, what you are doing is you are casting off all restraint of God. You are making yourself a God in your own eyes, and you are lawless in complete rebellion against God when you sin. And he says... If your life is characterized by that, you are a lawless person. That's what he means by practicing sin. You see, to practice sin is to live a life where that is the overall characteristic of your life. How do I know that? Because John has used that same kind of language at the end of chapter 2 to talk about a life that reflects the, the surrender, the authenticity of a surrender to Christ. Look at verse 29 of 1 John 2. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And so if a life um, of righteousness is the manifestation of uh, an authentic surrender to Jesus Christ, a life of lawlessness is a manifestation of a life that is in complete rebellion against God. The person who practices sin, whose life is, is characterized by sin, who has institutionalized sin in their lives and removed Jesus from their lives, that person is lawless in complete rebellion against God, total rebellion against God, because sin is lawlessness. So that's the, the, overall, or the overarching truth that he is saying, and then he applies it in two specific ways. Here's the first way that he applies it. He says in the verses that follow, first, continuing to sin is incompatible with our profession, our profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Continuing to sin is incompatible with our profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. Um, you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or 
knows him. In the church to which John was writing, there were people who were saying, I know Jesus. Jesus is my Savior. I worship Jesus as Savior as you worship Jesus as Savior. And yet their lives were being characterized by lawlessness, by sin. They were continuing to practice sin. And these verses make the point that to profess Christ as Savior and to live a life that is characterized by lawlessness is a logically impossible thing that you you can do. It is theologically impossible. It is logically impossible, John says in these verses, to proclaim Jesus is my Savior and to continue to live in sin. Why is that? Because of what Christ came to do in the first place. If you went out onto the street and asked someone about the mission of Jesus, what did Jesus come to do? you could probably get someone to stumble out words that sound something like this. Jesus came to forgive me for my sins. Now, is that wrong? Well, it better not be. Uh, Otherwise, I'm in trouble. I I have been forgiven of my sin. I surrendered myself to Jesus Christ as my Savior, and as a result of that, I've experienced reconciliation with God. My sin has been forgiven. But in actuality, and John gets at it here, we lose sight of the fact that Jesus didn't just come to forgive you of your sin. He came to deliver you from sin. Do you hear the difference? Not just forgive you for it, but deliver you from it. That was his mission. His mission was to take away our sin. It's not just the preacher's opinion on this. This is the consistent teaching of the New Testament. In fact, in one of the most famous passages that Paul ever wrote, he wrote these words in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The sacrifice of Christ so thoroughly and completely killed the old us that it raised up within us a new nature that is a reflection of Jesus Christ. His mission was to deliver us from sin, not just to forgive us for it. And John says in these words that if you believe that you can profess faith in Christ and live a life that is characterized by sin, you're not just a little off. You don't just need to have your thinking on this tweaked a little bit. Look again at what he says in verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. I don't know who you're following, John says. If your life is characterized by sin, but it ain't Jesus. Because continuing to live a life that is characterized by open rebellion against God is incompatible with the profession of faith in a Savior who came to deliver us from our sin. That's the first thing that he does that is an implication of verse 4. But the second thing he does is he says that continuing to sin is incompatible with our nature. Our very nature, not just the profession we make that we belong to Christ, but it's incompatible with the very nature of a follower of Christ. And he will make that point about nature twice in three verses. Look at verse 7. 
Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Did you see the comparison that is being made there? The person that belongs to Christ has his nature. How do we know? Because his righteousness is manifested in ours. Our nature as followers of Jesus is to become like Jesus. This goes back to what Colossians says. Colossians chapter 2 speaks of, of being uh, in Christ, of having received Christ. That doesn't mean that I've just started to believe some things about Christ. That means that his very nature has been fully integrated into my own and has overwhelmed who I was so that the old self is dead and something brand new that is Christ is emerging from me. And I walk in that. I live in that. When I have victory over sin in my life, it's a victory of his nature in me working its way out and winning out over the sin that would normally characterize me. Your nature as a follower of Jesus is to be righteous because the one in you is righteous. So what then does it mean if you're characterized by sin and lawlessness? It means your nature is showing itself. Your nature is belonging to the devil, the one who is fully and completely opposed to the purposes of God. That's a strong point he's making. It's really unmistakable. You don't need a seminary education. You just need to slow down and read it. That's what he's saying. Righteousness is a manifestation of the nature of Christ in me. Lawlessness is a manifestation of the nature of Satan in me. And then he makes that point again in a little stronger way, actually. Verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning. Because he has been born of God. He has the life of God in him. He cannot. It's, it's logically impossible. It's theologically impossible for a person to be characterized by sin if the life of God has truly taken up residence in them. Yesterday is a beautiful spring day. I hope we get a whole lot more of them. I hate winter. Winter is a product of the fall and sin. There is... There, there is amen. Amen. It is. Adam and Eve, again, I point this out all the time. You can't fight this in Scripture. Adam and Eve were unclothed before sin. It's, it wasn't 30, all right? I mean, clearly. And then they had to have clothing afterwards. It must have gotten colder. I'm just saying. Beautiful spring day yesterday. I had, I, I had some work needed to get done in the backyard and so I was out there for several hours, and it involved kind of tearing some stuff up and getting some bare ground out there. And so I took some rye seed, some rye grass seed, and threw it out there. And uh, knowing it was going to rain uh, here for the better part of this week. Um, and here's my expectation. My expectation is that in 21 days, or when the ground temperature gets to 55 degrees, that that seed's going to sprout, and I'm going to get... And, and hang with me here. This is complex agricultural stuff. I'm going to get ryegrass. I'm not going to get okra, much as I love okra. I mean, I grew up in, in, a, in a southern culture. Fried okra is a sacrament in, in the world in which I grew up. I mean, that's just the way it is. Fry anything, and it makes it better. I'm not expecting okra to come up from those seeds I cast on the ground. I'm expecting 
rye grass. In all seriousness, John says the reason that continuing to practice sin is indicative of someone who's never given their life to Christ in the first place and doesn't know him is because a person that's given their life to Christ has the very nature of God, the seed of God in them, born of God, and that is going to show itself. That is the nature of someone who has given their life to Christ. And then he closes it out in case anybody missed it. He says in verse 10, By this it is evident, evident, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness, whose life is not characterized by righteousness, is not of God. What is righteousness? Well, I, last week when I was teaching the end of 1 John 2 and the first part of 1 John 3, I just pointed out the fact that, that righteousness, as John is using it in this particular section of Scripture, is following the moral example of Christ. If my life is not characterized by someone who is striving to endeavor, striving, endeavoring, to live according to the moral example of Christ. John says, I'm not of God. I'm not a follower. Despite what I say, despite how I respond when asked, I'm not a follower. I'm pretending. And then he says, nor is the one who does not ha love his brother. And that just is introducing what we'll talk about next week. It's funny, John, John gets this reputation as being the apostle of love and, you know, you know, it's cool man. And he says some of the hardest things in the Bible. There's no mistaking what he's doing here. He's saying sin's a huge deal. And if you really have been saved from it, you're going to get as far away from it as possible. And your life's going to be characterized by following the example of Christ and not lawlessness. And see, at this point, we all kind of start hoping God's grading on the curve, right? Because only the most unaware of us would say, I never sin. I never sin. So we're hoping, well, is God great on the curve? Well, first of all, he doesn't grade us in the first place. If he did, we're all, we all flunk. So there's no curve. God's not grading us on the curve. But what he's doing is looking for the, the Jesus response in our life. If we've given our life to Christ, he reconciles us to himself through the blood of Jesus and places his nature in us and we grow in that. And if we've not, we remain in our sin. So what do you do with that? You know, I know I did that. I've been, I've been a follower of Jesus for 42 years. This month, 42 years, I've given my life to Christ. But I still sin, so what do I do with that? How do I, how do I navigate that? I, I, don't, 
I don't struggle with everything, but I struggle with some things. You know, for instance, I, I've never been drunk or high. I have never intentionally viewed a pornographic image. God has graced me in, in never seeking that out, and if it has come across my field of view, has graced me to this point in my life of being able to turn immediately away. I've never done that. You say, well, good job. Okay, well, the rest of that story is um, my attitude can sometimes stink. And I have, at times, an unhealthy relationship with material things. To put that bluntly, sometimes, after 42 years of following Jesus, I can be a jerk and be too enamored with shiny things. And those things are sin. Not, not stubbing my toe, not me just not being all I could be. Those things are sin. Those are lawlessness. So when I make the choice to be a jerk or buy something that I don't need, I am manifesting their lawlessness. So does, what, what does John have to say about me? And how do I need to think about my life? It all goes back to that word practices. I mean, I really did think that I might be better 42 years in at this thing than I am. But if you talk to those close to me, and if you talk to me one-on-one, I will tell you that the goal of my life is to glorify God, to make much of Him in my life and how I live. And I will sometimes jack that up completely. But I feel a crushing burden when I do. His Holy Spirit burns like fire in me when those things happen and says that's lawlessness, Derek, in your life in that pocket. You need me. Surrender yourself to me there. Let my grace be manifest to you there. And I keep moving forward. But we all know people, don't we? Like that man whose funeral I did, who knew the tune of Christianity and the words of Christianity, but they weren't his. And the reason we knew that is because his life proved it. He was kidding himself. He was only pretending. And this morning, we need to We need to approach our world with with how John has taught us to view it. And so what does it mean? It means that it's time for some people who attend church every week to wake up and realize that this isn't, as, as some old preachers used to say, Kim Maples and I were talking about this on the way out between services, salvation's not fire insurance. It is a renewal of life in the image of Christ. And if that's not happened for you, if it's not there, give your life to Jesus. He's holding out to you now his grace and his mercy to save you. But it may be the broader application for this for many of us is that we have people that we love who long ago had a religious thing, a cultural thing, and they've abandoned it. They've walked away from it. Don't even want to talk about it. And in our passion to see them made right with God, sometimes we short-circuit that process by trying to remind them that they are saved. And instead, what we need to be doing is pointing out to them that they are not. 
because you can't solve a problem until you've identified the problem. And the problem isn't a new study Bible or the latest devotional book. The problem is not knowing Jesus, and that's where you need to start with them. That's where you need to start. Because this whole idea of salvation forever, being secure, once saved, always saved, is, is about really perseverance. It's about this movement from death and sin to the life of Christ. And if there's no journey, no consistent journey, then there's no faith in Christ. And we need to talk and pray for people like that. But the other broad application of this for us is those of us who have been followers of Jesus for decades, maybe, to renew the war against lawlessness in our lives that shows up in pockets so that our lives can bear a testimony of the goodness and grace of Christ. So with thinking on those things, let's go to the Lord in prayer.